This is CPX number 61, The Administration of Baptism. We are in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, page 64, question and answer number 5 onwards. My name is Father David Nix, and as you can see, I am in a parish. I'm in the Gulf Coast right now, and uh, this is a uh, parish that had me for the Triduum. Got to do my first solemn high masses as priest and subdeacon and very glorious, beautiful parish, many charitable uh, parishioners, including the pastor who is very kind to have me here. You might notice this different background here. This will be uh, on today while I speak, and let's begin in prayer. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us and save us, you who are all good, amen. Question number five, to whom does it belong to confer baptism? To confer baptism belongs by right to bishops and parish priests, but in case of necessity, any person, whether man or woman, even a heretic or an infidel, can administer it, provided he carry out the rite of baptism and has the intention of doing what the church does. Question number six, if it were necessary to baptize a person in danger of death, and if several people were present, who should minister to the sacrament? Answer, if it were necessary to baptize a person in danger of death, and if several people were present, a priest, if such were at hand, should administer the sacrament, and in his absence, one of the inferior clergy, and in the absence of such, a layman in preference to a woman, unless in the case in which the greater skill on the part of the woman or the claims of propriety should make demand otherwise. Number seven, what intention should the person baptizing have? And so the person baptizing should have the intention of doing what Holy Church does in baptizing, the rite of baptism and the disposition of the adult who receives it. Number eight, how is baptism given? Answer, baptism is given by pouring water on the head of the person to be baptized, and if it cannot be poured on the head, then on some other principal part of the body, saying at the same time, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Number nine, if one were to pour the water and another to pronounce the words, would the person be baptized? Answer, if one person poured the water and another said the words of baptism, the person would not be baptized because it is necessary that the person who pours the water should pronounce the words. Number 10, when in doubt whether the person is dead, is it right to omit baptizing him? Answer, when in doubt whether the person is dead, he should be baptized conditionally, saying, If thou art alive, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. So today we're going to look at number 5 and number 10. Let's listen to number 5 again. To whom does it belong to confer baptism? Answer, to confer baptism belongs by right to bishops and parish priests, but in case of necessity, any person, whether man or woman, even a heretic or an infidel, can administer it, provided he carry out the rite of baptism and has the intention of doing what the church does. Okay, funny story for you. It was about a year ago, and I basically put something like this on Twitter, and someone must have had like a, a little degree in theology or a little bit of theological training publicly accused me of being a heretic for saying you had to have the right intention for doing a sacrament like baptism. Now there's a lot of people out there like that that think sacraments are just magic tricks that don't require faith, that don't require intention. 
Now, the, the heresy that this person accused me of was Donatism. This is what Wikipedia defines Donatism as. Donatism was a Christian sect leading to schism in the Roman Catholic Church in the region of the Church of Carthage from the 4th to the 6th centuries AD. Donatists argued that Christian clergy must be faultless for their ministry to be effective and their prayers and sacraments to be valid. So because I said you had to have intention to do a valid baptism, this person accused me of being a donatist, meaning that I was claiming a priest had to be perfect to effect the sacrament of baptism. Okay, luckily my friend Nate came to my rescue here. I knew this, but I didn't have the time to research it. He quoted the Council of Trent. I think he quoted chapter 7, canon 11, because that's the one I just Googled and found for you. And it says this, Quote, if anyone saith that in ministers, when they affect and confer the sacraments, there is not required the intention at least of doing what the church does, let him be anathema, end quote. As you know, anathema means condemn, cut off. And whenever you hear that in an official dogmatic council of the church, that means it is infallible. It's infallible that you have to have the intention to effect a sacrament. Doesn't mean you have to be a perfect person. Doesn't mean you have to be in sanctifying grace. Doesn't even mean, in the case of baptism, that you are a Catholic or even a Christian, but you do have to have the intention of doing what the church says. And if you deny that intention part, you are anathema, cut off, condemned, you're a heretic. And so this is what's kind of funny, is how many times in my life the liberal Catholics who accuse me of heresy reveal themselves as public heretics. And it also is funny how many times this happens in my life that every time liberal Catholics accuse me of something, it gets proven quite frequently that they're actually guilty of the very things that they accuse me of. Recently, on a video with David Gray, we talked about the differences between the African culture and the African-American culture. And I wrote a blog post a few days ago against those who accuse me of racism for pointing out simply what African immigrants had said. I wrote this blog post saying that actually... The people are racists for believing that a white man can discuss the differences between Irish Americans and Irish immigrants, but not the difference between, say, African immigrants and African Americans. My friend David Gray, who is a black American himself, not from Africa, but an African American, also made a whole video defending me in that blog post I wrote. It's actually under the blog post or in it. I think I call it something like liberal Catholic zombies are after me again. And be sure to subscribe to his channel. But the point is this. Um, you got to be careful on social media what you accuse people of because you usually fall into it yourself. Um, I've noticed that every time you publicly accuse someone, it often falls on your own head. And my enemies who falsely accuse me also send me new readers, so thank you to them for that. Okay, back to the, back to the baptism question here. Um, let's say you have a Catholic mom who's about to give birth and her husband can't be in the room because of COVID, because of COVID, the new pagan idol that everyone bows down in front of, but that's the case. She's in, let's pretend she's in the uh, labor and delivery unit, and um, baby is born blue, and then she looks and she sees her baby's not breathing. In fact, um, her baby is most likely in respiratory arrest, maybe cardiac arrest, and the only one in that room is a Jewish nurse. Now, can the mom ask the Jewish nurse to do the baptism? Yes. She can. Would it be a valid baptism? Yes. Because the mom's faith serves in proxy for the baby, and as long as the Jewish nurse intends to do what the church does, doesn't mean she has to be able to 
quote the Council of Trent, simply obey the good Catholic mom in that. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> that is sufficient. It's when you have a contrary intention to say, do what the Arians want to do or whatever heretic you want to put in there. Once you have the intention of obeying a Catholic, so if the Jewish nurse is willing to do what the Catholic mom says with her dying baby, then she is implicitly desiring to do what the church desires. And therefore, she does have the right intention, even as a non-Christian in baptizing that baby. Um, now, number seven said this, what intentions should the person baptizing have? The person baptizing should have the intention of doing what Holy Church does in baptizing, namely the rite of baptism and the disposition of the adult who receives it. So the example I just gave you was a child. But let's talk about someone who's over seven, over the age of reason. I'm going to give you an example of someone who does have sufficient disposition and someone who does not have sufficient disposition. So uh, many of you may have seen that video that Taylor Marshall put out when he was at the gym and there was a woman who was drowning and someone pulled out of the pool. And just like he said in the video, he did call me and said, Father Dave, should I baptize her? And we both decided no, um, because there was no explicit sign of faith that came from her. We didn't know she wasn't already baptized. But the main thing is, because she was unconscious, and because she didn't have, as a child, an adult ask, acting for her in proxy, um, you can't baptize somebody if they haven't shown faith. Because again, baptism is not a magic trick. You have to have the matter meet the supernatural faith for it to actually work. So. Taylor did the right thing in not baptizing that person. Now, <clears throat> give me give a story of uh, sufficient, sufficient um, disposition that I judged in a, something that happened in my priesthood about five years ago. It was a very high-profile burn patient, an 18-year-old who made a public statement with his body, something I won't explain with kids listening here, but he had third-degree burns on 95% of his body. And because it was on the news, they didn't say what hospital he went to. And because it was on the news, I knew there would be kind of a guarded ICU. But because I used to be a medic, I knew which hospital, I knew what our burn unit in Denver was, even though I suspected they'd passed by about five or six hospitals, including trauma centers, to get there. And I was right. I got in, I snuck into the ICU, and uh, I didn't lie. I came up to the nurses and I said, I'm his priest, um, which at that moment was true because he had no other priest because he wasn't Catholic. So I made myself his priest. Um, I'm Jesuit educated, so I'm sneaky, but I never lie. So I got in there, and um, sure enough, he uh, had bandages, I mean, very, very thick bandages, was intubated, had 95% of his body heavily, heavily burned, third-degree burns. Um, and uh, I said to him, something along the lines of Jesus loves you, he will wash away all of your sins. Um, can I baptize you? Just blink for yes. And I saw a blink. Now, there's a chance that blink could have been from pain or whatever else, but I believed I saw a movement sufficient enough to consider that supernatural faith. But I had to baptize him on his hand or his arm. I had to find a tiny little area of skin because his whole head was wrapped in very, very thick gauze bandages. And as you heard, uh, I think it was in number eight today, if you can't baptize the head, you baptize some other principal part of the body. And that's what I did. God rest his soul, he died a few days later. Um, now, I don't know if he was baptized before that. If that was the case, then the baptism did nothing. Um, if I judged it wrong and he was in a state of rebellion and this person had no supernatural faith at all, when, when I said that and he just happened to blink at that time, the baptism probably didn't work. But we always err on the side of faith. We always err on the side of mercy 
um, in cases like that. Okay, now let's look at number 10. When in doubt whether the person is dead, is it right to omit baptizing him? Answer, when in doubt whether the person is dead, he should be baptized conditionally saying, if thou art alive, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, today we're going to talk about another slightly sensitive topic, and it is the baptism of miscarried babies. So this may be a point where you may want to turn off with the kids, but I think, again, they can handle it if you do. Um, it is a sad topic and of parts, the baptism of babies, um, should someone deliver a miscarried child. And as I always apologize to you all for, I just don't even get back to emails anymore because I'm just so far behind. So I'm, I'm sorry if you guys who are working on this are listening, um, but a friend did give me a pamphlet. She sent me something that was published in 1963. I'm going to give you guys this so you can get out a pen and Google it if you want to get it. I know there's a lot of families out there wondering do we baptize miscarried baby parts? Do we baptize miscarried babies? What's the threshold of life that has to be there? And I always trust uh, old things more than new things, as I think most of you know. Um, so this is a pamphlet called Question and Answer Baptism of a Fetus. It's by the Reverend Francis J. Connell. It's a small pamphlet out of the Holy Redeemer College in Washington, D.C. Again, Baptism of a Fetus by the very Reverend Francis J. Connell. And the main thing I want to read you here is it says, Since the fetus is usually enclosed in membranes, these must be opened and the amniotic fluid allowed to flow out. The thumb and forefinger of both hands should be used. Then the fetus is dipped in warm water in a basin or a bowl or held under the water flowing from the faucet and the words, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost are pronounced. The words are said as the water flows over the fetus, the person, and over the head if discernible. But here's a really important line I want everybody to hear that, that is in this. And maybe some people won't like this, but this is from 1963, so it's kind of important um, that we look at this. It says, Many young women are not sufficiently instructed in the important truth that the product of a miscarriage is to be baptized unless it is surely dead. Unless it is surely dead. Now, there's some traditionalists out there who will baptize anything. Um, and I think we have to be very careful not to go in the direction of superstition on all of this. So again, that's from 1963, and it says you do not baptize it if it is surely dead. So kind of keep that in mind. Otherwise, we're moving in the direction of desperate superstition if people are just baptizing decomposed body parts and stuff like that. I'm sorry to say that on my podcast, but there's a, there's a, a misunderstanding out there in a lot of families I've talked to. And God bless them for believing in um, the power of baptism, the necessity of baptism for salvation. God bless them for keeping saying yes to life after so many heartbreaking miscarriages. My heart goes out to you. I've, I've cried with and for um, such families that, that you guys go through this stuff. Um, but it's still no reason to launch into superstition. So if you're sure it's dead or is, is not actually a baby that could be alive, um, it seems to say in this 1963 thing, again, this isn't me. I'm going to read you directly from uh, something that has the approbation of the church in 1963. Quote, I believe that many young married women are not sufficiently instructed in the important truth that the product of a miscarriage is to be baptized unless it is surely dead. 
So God bless all of you, and please say an Our Father for me.